From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We come to you every Tuesday afternoon, show up on Wednesday on your feeds, on Twitter, to talk sports analytics. We've been doing it for nine plus years. Same crew. Today, we're down one person, one crew member, one collaborator. Eric Bradlow's out doing Eric Bradlow things. The rest of us are here. Shane Jensen is here. Audie Weiner is here. And this is Cade Massey. We have uh, a usual show, our regular show. We have a couple of guests in the middle segments, Qs 2 and 3. We're going to talk to Nick Hasselman. Nick is president of B-Ball Breakdown, the most popular YouTube channel devoted to NBA. This is a good time of year to do that. And we're going to talk to Corey Yates. Corey is the co-founder and CEO of Real Analytics. This is a, a new player in the sports tech space analyzing football players, American football players at both the college and high school level for recruiting purposes, using computer vision and some new algorithms, interesting emerging player in that world. We have those in Q2 and three. We, in the meantime, have an open line segment here to start the show Q1. It remains one of the best times of the year, given what's going on in the world of basketball and hockey. Those series remain interesting what's what are you paying attention to what's caught your eye in the world of sports guys well certainly i've been watching a lot of playoff hockey it's been a uh, it's been fact fascinating playoffs already of course the first round was sort of notable because you know the top two seeds basically the top two teams in the league certainly by regular season record got bounced and all and all told it's, it continues to be a great uh playoff run for a couple wildcard teams you know the florida panthers went through Boston, look like they're going through Toronto. I mean, they're up 3-0 on Toronto as well, so they could be a, basically an eighth seed making it into the semis. Um, and then the Seattle Kraken went through yeah. the Avalanche and now are going through the Dallas Stars. Well, they're only up 2-1 against the Dallas Stars, but are making an amazing run for a second-year franch- expansion team. So Yeah. Well, that's great lead there, Shane. Thank you. Can you give us a little bit of a breakdown of why the Panthers are doing what they're doing in general, but also against the Leafs? 3-0 is a pretty ugly record at this point of the series and does not bode well for them making it through the second round. What what are the Panthers doing this playoffs? And I mean, really pushing, uh, honestly, ag- aggressive hockey play and, 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 and high energy hockey play. I mean, Toronto, at least in this last game, looked like absolutely lifeless. And, and, and it's weird a team that a team down two Oh, I mean, if, if you, if, right. if that's a time to start, you know, start bringing the energy and Florida just kind of was rolling over them. And I, and I think, I don't know. I mean, I, honestly, in Eric's absence, we should almost like, you know, kind of discuss a little momentum. Florida, of course, you know, was the last team. It's, it was the last team to qualify for the playoffs. They had to make, you know, they, you know, it's, it's these kind of like wildcard teams that are on a run by almost by construction, by them getting into the playoffs. Maybe we're right. just sort of seeing them kind of maintain it. And again, I mean, their ability to maintain that energy and aggressiveness deep into playoffs is starting to look also very impressive i mean most people that you know saw them beat the bruins were like oh well they spent themselves doing that there's you know toronto's going to roll over them and that's certainly not the case so Mm -hmm. yeah now you you mentioned two of the four series there are two other series of course carolina and new jersey carolina jumped out to two a lead and then new jersey smacked them yesterday i believe it was 
and then flip it around the Vegas, the still in my mind, expansion Vegas golden Knights smacked our Edmonton Oilers. Just don't don't do our, I'm I'm going to continue to, I'll, Every time you say it, I'm going to oppose it. I'm t- I don't know. No, they're not ours. They're not ours. I, I agree. I was just poking fun at your Calgary. Yeah. Um, your Calgary loyalties. Um, but in those two, when I look at Micah McCurdy, which is what we want to do this yeah. time of year, Micah, one of our guests and a great hockey analyst, as we've been saying every week lately, runs a great Twitter feed, Micah Blake McCurdy. And he's got a great data viz and um, it's, it's a great model. Um, as far as we know, it's a great model. It's a good model that might be great with a great data viz and some competing probabilities to 538's um, projections. And they've liked Carolina for, Micah's liked Carolina for a while, and Carolina remains the yeah, dominant Yeah, I mean, it, I, it, it makes sense. I mean, Carolina was, the I, I think, is the best kind of, you know, certainly based on the regular season, is the best remaining team in the playoffs. I think they had the second highest Goal like kind of a goal differential to Boston, though a very distant second um, during the regular season. So yeah, I, it, it kind of makes sense, and 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 I I kind of see them as especially that you know again the model is the Micah's model's not buying into this Eric Bradlow momentum thing that Florida you, you know it's it's continued to see Florida defy the it, it's probably not updating its odds with Florida continuing to defy the odds. You know, there's not going to be I doubt much of his sim is going to build in kind of their current run of success as opposed to kind of where, where they are versus a, as a regular season team. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It'd be All interesting right. to talk to him about that sometime though, whether, whether like, you know, within playoff success is all, you know, cause I mean, obviously you're only narrowing down among the teams that are having success, whether there's any kind of predictive value to that. Right. You're saying, do you, how much are you updating on the team's power ranking? I mean, you're, you know, it's going to be some, the question is just whether it's, well, one question is whether it receives any it's upweighted at all because of its because it's playoffs, or is it just like yeah. another normal game that you put yeah, in? Yeah, or, or like you know, like if, if if your team's playing an eighth seed, is it informative if you're playing them in the first round versus like the third round? You know, because by definition, the eighth seed will, will has to you you know has, has won several a couple improbable series in the latter case. What do you so, think? Do you do, think it is, or I mean, we yeah, I, think I, don't, I think there's something to it. I mean, I think, is it, I think whether. So. It's not stationarity moment. I mean, hockey is a very complex sport with a lot of injury, you know, like teams kind of kind of put together or go on a run or you could just get a hot goaltender and, you know, so uh, can you, Shane, all that. Can you, Shane, can you explain to me one thing uh, that I don't quite get? Cause I don't get a lot about hockey um, in, in basketball. There, this incredible ramp up that they can do for the playoffs and they can pull down, they can pull up. Is there something similar in hockey? Do they play ramp up? You mean like, like harder? Do they like, take it to them like for every game that the way they don't do in the season. Wow. You, you, you really don't watch a lot of playoff hockey. To, to no, no I don't. Yeah. It's, it, it is in it my mind, as, as a frequent viewer, it is noticeably different. So it is noticeably different. I can't yeah. tell. But Shane, but Shane, hold on. Adi's referring to this. Yeah. The, I mean, it's so different in basketball that for example, 538 has separate models for team strength, one based on regular season, one on playoffs. Yeah. Well, well, okay. So I, I mean, but that's, I mean, certainly the playoff, playoff, they wrap up both energy was, uh, you know, certainly for plus. I think hockey does a little bit less of the kind of load management, you know, bench their star players for like the last two weeks to say whatever, you know. So, I mean, I, I think partly, you know, 538 does that, you know, there's such a big difference because 
you know, by almost intention, the regular season is a different team than the playoff team. I, I think mm-hmm. it's more cohesive a connection between the two. In hockey, it's, I think, a little bit more their tradition, though there's sometimes some key additions right around playoff time. It's more the tradition that it's just sort of a ramped up version of the hockey team you're experience, or a ramped down, flat, choking team like the Boston Bruins ended up being. I mean, you, you know, it doesn't always, you know, teams don't always ramp up like they're supposed to. And they don't, well, you know. I, mean, I guess one question I would have is, did the, did the Bruins overperform because they were going for record and they ended up playing harder and looking better during the season than they truly were relative to the other team? I don't think so. I mean, there's always a temptation, but but they were resting players in the last like few weeks. Patrice Bergeron was injured, for example, until like game three. They were, they, they, they were, they were continuing to win and hold, records kind of doing you know what the hockey version of load management already uh-huh. was but i know the temptations there i mean it, it you know it, it we, we see it in lots of other sports you know i mean i'm sure like you know aaron judges run last year everybody was talking about whether he should have maybe been getting a little bit more rest well it's interesting because one thing you can ask is which team which which sports have the biggest divergence between the playoffs and the regular season and i would say basketball is one followed by hockey then I don't know where to go. Uh, I don't think football is that different. I don't think baseball is that different. But uh, we could try to rank them. But uh, is football at all a bit different? American football? Well, again, sir, I, I guess it's like um, there's two aspects of this. Because you mentioned hockey and basketball in the same breadth. And I think, I mean, I mean, th- 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 there's those two sports are similar in that I think they both have this kind of ramp up of energy, you know, intensity level. But... You know, it's not like basketball playoffs. I mean, this season maybe is an exception, but at least at least over the last 20 years have not been this unpredictable thing that hockey playoffs are. I mean, I mean, are you talking about the unpredictability of no, not the, unpredictability. the performance or just somehow the difference in energy levels or the what? difference in energy level making the this necessary to have a separate model for the for the playoffs as opposed to the season? That's it. Yeah, and I think football is probably the least if you're thinking of that aspect, just because you know there's. So I think they're pretty going going pretty hard, regardless of regular season or playoffs. Yeah, it's a it's a super interesting question because y'all are not even talking about your favorite sport, which is baseball, and how different that is in the in the in the in the postseason because of yeah. the pitching rotation, the rest, yeah. and things like that. So it is interesting that it varies across sport in this way. I'm with Shane; it probably varies the least in football. But another factor that goes in here is player availability and the impact an individual player can have on team performance is greatest in basketball. And so we've seen these situations Mm -hmm. where, you know, last year when the Warriors didn't have their whole roster until the end of the season, like literally, and then they came together and played great. Anthony Davis, how much uh, this season did Anthony Davis miss? The Lakers barely make it into the playoffs, but now he's playing. Maybe he's not full speed or maybe he's out still some, but he's able to take over games. And a little bit of that goes a long way in the playoff series. And so I I, I, I think this is a, we've not we've, we've never talked about this particular quality or difference across sports that I know of. And it does seem to be pretty starkly different across the sports. Maybe. Yeah, no, no, yeah, no I, I do think it's it's, you know, I mean, I think all the you know, it's a com- uh the extent that it even happens in football is probably more the kind of injury thing. Like you might get a key key, uh, you know, you'll either get somebody key locked at knocked out right before the playoffs or, or come back right around the playoffs. It can make a pretty big difference. But I think, you know, that's present in basketball and hockey, but there's like a much greater kind of, you know, load management, all kinds of things where the regular season is not necessarily the same team as the, the postseason. Yeah. 
Shane, two other quick questions on NHL before we go away from it. One, um, the Dreisaitl four-goal game. Yeah. No, 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 so Dreisaitl had four goals, and the Oilers lost game one. And then uh, uh, it also had, it had Joe Pavelski had four goals in that first game of the Stars against the Kraken, and they lost too. So I don't know if that's ever happened. Two different game ones, somebody scores four goals for your team, and in both cases, that team loses. Well, it's remarkable in so many ways. I mean, I, I start. I want to just know, like, how common is it for a player to score four goals in a hockey game? The hat trick is supposed to be a big deal, and yeah. we see the hats come on the yeah. ice or whatever. That's a big deal. Four obviously is beyond that. So, how yeah. often does it occur? It's pretty rare. I mean, the only I think the only one to score five in a game is Mario Lemieux back in like the nineties or whatever like that. Okay, I think Gretzky kind of had like, Gretzky had eight or nine points in one game. I remember or something like that. I mean, it's just not, not so kind of, you know, it's, it's almost a different sport, but anyway, but yeah, but uh, no, it's, it's very unusual. I mean, okay. if anybody, I mean, I mean, it, to the extent that you guys are watching hockey, this anytime dry, dry, dry has got the puck. You're, you're, it's almost like you expect a goal at this point. Uh-huh. Especially on that power play. That's like, again, the league leading power play. And he's out there with uh, Connor McDavid and it's, it's just yeah, a, and I and the, you can kind of see the Golden Knights' main strategy is avoid to take, you know main somewhat successful strategy so far is just stop taking penalties. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, one last hockey thing: the the draft yeah. lottery was last was it last night? So um, apparently, this, tell us ago. tell us no, about I mean, this prospect because you know the draft is every now and then people talk about there being a generational player. Now, notably. We talk about it more often than once a generation. No, that's right. All right. You know, it's uh, those generational players aren't always generational players. Every know? three or four yeah. years, we get a generational yeah. player. Okay. So we have another but Bedard, one. But Connor Bedard certainly looking like the highest, like most hyped prospect since McDavid at, you know, McDavid would probably be the last most hyped prospect. And that's okay. this guy. And then after that, it probably goes back to like, you know, Sidney Crosby or Malkin or somebody like that. Jeez. Type of thing. Okay. So, so, so okay. I mean, it's certainly like, you know, uh, you know, it, it was the type of draft where people went in knowing the number one pick. It, it was a pick for Bedard. It, it was a Bedard sweepstakes as opposed to just, yeah. you know, the usual kind of number one yeah. draft choice. And, and uh, you know, I mean, again, they do it by a lottery in the NHL, similar to in the NBA. And so a, a lot of the kind of, you know, teams with, with worse records have some chance. And actually the Blackhawks are the ones that ended up w- uh, getting the pick winning the number one C uh, number one uh, slot. And they only had like the third highest probability of doing it, but it's pretty flat at the top, you know, like Anaheim, Anaheim had the worst record last year and had like a 19% chance of getting number one. And it's like, I think the Blackhawks won at number three, they had like a 12% chance. So it's, you know, they, you know, they spread the probability among the top, like, 14 teams or something like that. So it's really, it's, I mean, it's, it's very, flat. on the one hand, you think, well, the only the third highest team won the thing, which is, you know, exciting for Chicago. But on the other hand, in fact, there's more than a 50, 50 chance that a team below the Blackhawks would have won it. The, the, the top three only make up, you know, 42, 43%. Yeah, that's right. And so this is, it is really flat. Now, what does that do? It, it, they're trying to take the edge off of, um, of, Tanking. Uh, Obviously, it's an anti-tank, mostly an anti-tank mechanism. I think it's also maybe an acknowledgement that, like, usually when, you know, usually the kind of, like, how crappy the, you know, the one versus two versus three, the the first to fifth teams in the NHL usually are are, are somewhat equal need of help. 
you know, type of thing. So right. maybe that's part of the rationale as well. Okay. All right. Well, let's jump over to the NBA then. What is the report there? And are you guys paying enough attention to the NBA? Those series, I mean, I, I keep on, all my teams are losing now. I had a great first round and I'm having a bad second round, except for the Kraken, who are maybe my only favorite team that's still leading. What What is the NBA doing for you guys? I, I mean, I watched a bit of the Lakers-Warriors game after hockey ended last night. And I mean, it was an exciting finish. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I uh, it was. I, but I, I, again, I, I felt like I was, and I need to get more into the sport to kind of appreciate the moments before the last five minutes of the game. Um, but I feel like my strategy of just kind of, oh, there's an East Coast game with about five minutes left. I can see what I need to see tonight. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it, basketball definitely has that vibe. It's almost like, you know, I mean, also some of these games have been 20, 30, 40 point games where it's kind of a tennis thing. You know, these tennis guys, if they're going to lose a set in an important match, they might just go ahead and quit trying and to preserve their energy. And it seems like that happens some in playoff series as well. And so you kind of want to know, is this going to be one of those or is this going to be interesting? And you hang on and sometimes you get an interesting one. But it is um, certainly more wide open than it has been historically, right? Like there could be like a seventh and eighth seed in the finals. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and again, with, with the Lakers where they are. So one of our regular listeners and good buddies, Yuval Rotenstrike sent me a drop a, a text overnight when that game went the way it did at the end of the night and said, Hey, look at this. The Lakers are odds, not odds on favorites, but favorites to win the West at this point, the, the Lakers after they clipped the Warriors to go up three, one last night, they're plus 150 to win the West. Nuggets plus 175. And then Phoenix plus 310 and Golden State all the way down to plus 850. Who would have thunk it? Not quite to the conference finals yet, but at this stage, the Lakers, strong favorites, not strong favorites, favorites over the Nuggets to win the whole thing, win the West. Yeah, I know what I mean. I, yeah, go ahead, Audie. No, it was, a, it was interesting. I watched the game last night. I mean, it seems the Warriors have Steph Curry and not much else. Um, or maybe that's high level randomness because a lot of those players can either hit those three point shots, which they were missing, or they they won't. And I, you would imagine that they would cancel each other out in some sort of random way, but it doesn't seem to work that way. Well, I mean, um, I also think that they have actually pretty much the same team as they've had like two or three years ago. It's just, I think Curry's. You know, most of that team is like, like, I think we're maybe Older. seeing some like, you know, like, Decline. you know, like somebody like Clay Thompson or Ego Dollar or whoever, like, you know, kind of not necessarily being at the same, like Curry, see, Curry seems to. Curry seems as good as ever. Yeah. And the rest of the team just does not. And the ones that have come up and I guess Wiggins doesn't look like he's having as great a, a season as he had in the past. So it's, uh, but what strikes me as interesting about basketball is these games will go blowouts or super close, like, like not randomly explainable close rubber band effect that was they like they're oh. yeah well that's right I, I think I, and hey kate sort of suggested that i think there's a mechanism that almost makes it bimodal whereas like you know if it's if it if it doesn't look like you're going to be in it in the last five minutes if you're already down by like 10 at the start of like the fourth or something like that then i think for, teams further just, back i'd say yeah Teams just are like, ah, oh, whatever. Go into it. It, get them next, energy get them next preservation time. mode. Yeah. Load management, load management, baby. Um, well, in the East, one, we see the Heat continuing to look good, um, but more close to home. We see this Sixers Celtics series kind of living up to the hype. 
I, you know, locally, I feel like I, locally and for, and for, for Maury, I feel like I need to pull for the Sixers, but I, I've always loved the Celtics and I love that organization well as well. So I, I, I kind of like both teams. I'd be happy with either one of them winning the whole thing, but that leaves me just wanting a seven game series. And it's such a good rivalry that I was happy to see the Sixers win last night or was it last night? Just if not, no other reason than to continue the okay, it was two, a couple, a couple nights ago, yeah, two days ago. Overtime. Yeah. Even even the thing up, and hopefully we'll get three more games. I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing basketball. Yeah, and, no, I was I was I was out to dinner with my parents at a restaurant, and they were they seemed understaffed. But it turns out it was just because most of the staff was dipping into the attached bar to check out the overtime of the, the game. <laughs> yeah, it was fantastic. We 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 were kept. Uh, you know, we could hear from the screaming that uh, what was going on. Dude, Harden is, you know, it's the, the drama of James Harden is another element of the series that is almost makes it must see TV. You, you don't know what you're going to get. And there's so much rending of clothing. It doesn't go the right way. Um, good fun. Um, all right, guys. Uh, what else we got here in the open segment? Anything else, especially on your mind across any sport? Well, I definitely want to talk some baseball. We're going to. Yeah get into it or no let's let's hold on let's do baseball last because we've got a, a fantastic uh twitter question from one of our listeners that i think is good red meat for you guys to dig your teeth into what about maybe I, I here I, at the bottom of q1 we can take a quick swing by the nfl we've we have a we have a we have a football guest in q3 but it's going to be more college recruiting shane i think asked this question any takeaways from the draft we're a couple of weeks after the assessments have been made. yeah or, or i mean it's kind of like i i it's around this time i sort of start thinking ahead of the season being like well are there any kind of big are, are 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 we kind of looking at teams now as they will be going into the season or are there kind of any big moves remaining out there um i don't think there's anything you know um as far as game changing uh players that are still free agents are the quarterback like settled that. is the first yeah question. Are the quarterback settled right I, and i you know i uh um I saw that uh, the the Buccaneers signed John Wolford today, uh, so they're all set at quarterback. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they've already got that Baker Mayfield, but but uh, but yeah, I, I guess you know, are the quarterbacks kind of where they need? You know, does every team have a, a a starting quarterback? And you know, does every team you know kind of like are there any kind of immediate holes for particular teams that need to be filled? Um, well, I mean, Shane, obviously. I think, I go, I go one step beyond that and start wondering about next year's draft. And again, QBs, it was, this year was a middling QB draft, even though we had four people they talked about going in the top 10, three ended up going in the top 10, still considered middling. Next year's draft is looking stronger, led by I mean, Caleb Williams, the UC quarterback transferred from OU, um, will, is already consensus number one. And, and he'll be, he won't be thought of as a middling, at least, you know, He's got a year to play, right? These assessments can change, but right now it looks like, and I mentioned all this because as you talk about what teams are going to do for 2023, somebody's going to tank for Caleb Williams. Mm -hmm. And um, the Cardinals right now have two high draft picks. Um, it, it could end up if the Texans aren't any good, that might end up being really high draft picks. If the Cardinals are as bad as we think they are. I think both of those teams are forecasted with very low um, win totals. And so the Cardinals are going to have two really high picks. How much did they pay Kyler Murray? 
And now we've got this really strong QB class coming in. Are they really that sold on Kyler Murray? It was the last administration, if you will, who signed him. Anyway, so I think there's there's always good – well, there's not always, but there's almost always good QB drama in the NFL. And I think some of it this year is going to be tank for Caleb and um, especially the drama around the Cardinals. No, to give those, uh, you know, the fan, some of some of the fans of like, you know, the, the Arizona Cardinals and stuff like, you know, give it, give, give them something to look out for this season. Because uh-huh. uh-huh. Kyler's not due back until for a while, right? I mean, he's is that right? Is he going to miss the start of the season? I thought so, but I'm not. Okay, sure. I'm not up. I'm not up to speed on his injury situation. Um, How do well, actually? I have a question. If we have a couple seconds, how does Massey Peabody? You don't. You don't have to go into the weeds or anything like that. But how does Massey Peabody? When I say saying thinking like, are the team set? How do we think ahead to the season? A is Massey Peabody kind of like, w- would it be ready to run and create pl- priors? And what do you guys kind of do for those priors going into a season? Right. Cause obviously you're so updating it, as the season goes on, but I kind of wondered yeah. how you create those priors. It's a super relevant question because historically it was more straightforward than it is now. Technology's advanced data has advanced enough that we're beginning to be able to do more on a player level in the same way that, you know, baseball has been player level for a long time. Basketball has been player level for a while and football is slowly becoming more player level beginning at the pro level because we've got better Mm -hmm. data on the players. And what I'm talking about is bottom, bottom up models. Historically, these power ranking models have been top down. You've got team level statistics, you parse them, you clean them up, you test them out of sample, you weigh them appropriately, but it's all top down. It's team level stats based. And increasingly, people can do better with bottom up um, power ranking. So you're basically combining these things. Now, it's much tougher in football because they don't just add up linearly, or at least we 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 may not be able to do anything different, but we know that's not the right way to do it. In baseball, you just add them up. There's not a lot of interactions and non-linearities. In football, we know there's just a ton of these things, but it's tough to well, get let me just Can I just jump in on that one? Um, yeah. We don't usually model those non, in, non those interactions and non-linearities. I do think they should. I think they're second order, but they should be modeled without a question. But, no, but I mean, I, I think maybe Kate's point is more that like the actual outcome, like like if you're looking at kind of the things you're trying to predict in baseball, like runs scored of a team, it is much more of an added. I mean, it's not it's much more of an additive result of the individual player. Prediction. Yeah, let's just say if you could, we have data constraints in football. You're not going to be able to do it very well, and you're going to you're probably going to get it wrong before you get it right. But we're moving that direction. But just say you could. Just say you could perfectly model the interactions and nonlinearities in in both football and baseball. How much of the potential variance explained could you get with a straight linear model in baseball versus football? And what oh, Shane is saying is yeah. you're going to get that, most of it. Yeah, that, that's that's a great way. Of that, that's it. that's, yeah, that's the, right. But but one, it's, it, the reason why I brought it up is that one of the questions that I posed to our seminar students as a potential project was uh, ponder a very simple question, which is. What is the contribution of a player to the team's uh, sort of maybe win total, you could say, or run total? Um, and how would that change depending on the, on the composition of the player that the, of the team that that player is added to? So the, yeah. at the broadest level, you imagine a team of all singles hitters. And what would a home run hitter do to that team as opposed okay. to a team of only home run hitters? And what did an extra home run hitter do to that team? And it's quite clear that the extra home run hitter to a team full of home run hitters doesn't have the same impact that, that a home run hitter has to a bunch of singles and walkers. Yeah, that's right. Um, and generally, those differences are, are, should, are, are ignored 
Well, I, would, I think you're going to say something different. I thought you were going to say generally those differences aren't very big because most teams, you've given the two extreme examples, and most teams are a pretty good mix of these things. And so right. team Absolutely. It's ignored for a reason. It doesn't matter that much. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. no, I mean, yeah, that's right. I think baseball has this advantage. It's sort of like the, the, the two levels in which I think it's less complex as kind of a team building or team modeling enterprise is it's not – is there's less interaction term interaction effects and it's not salary could like cap constraint and the way you know because football obviously you've got like at least at the nfl level you've got that resource management thing to kind of think about as well all right guys uh we're gonna need to go but just to put we'll come back to this topic because especially as we move close to football but to try to answer the topic briefly historically massey peabody has had only one player specific rating in the models and that's for quarterback and um, that's been that was that's fine for a long time. Maybe that's not so fine anymore with more and more data available. And the challenge for any models, any any football models going forward, really is how to develop the bottom the bottom up models, the player level models. Um, okay, fellas, why don't we wrap there? That has been one quarter of mass of Massey Peabody. <laughs> that's not one quarter of Massey Peabody. Low Massey key Massey Peabody high. Yeah. <laughs> You've got messy people on the brain. Three more quarters of Wharton Moneyball to come after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. This week, Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen, and Cade Massey are here with you. Whole show long, Eric Bradlow has stepped away for the week. He will be back. You guys can jump in here. We'd love to hear from you. Hit us up on Twitter at WMoneyBall is our handle there at WMoneyBall or drop us an email. Moneyball at Wharton.upen.edu. Moneyball at Wharton.upen.edu. We read everything you send us. Complaints, praise, questions, ideas, whatever you got, send them our way. We get as much of it as possible on the air. We have a Twitter question that we're going to dig into in Q4. We have a listener asking a meaty baseball question for our baseball analysts, and we're going to get into that in Q4. Throw us more stuff. All right, next two segments, our interview segments. In this one, Q2, we have Coach Nick Houselman. Nick is the president of B-Ball Breakdown. B-Ball Breakdown. B-Ball Breakdown is the most popular YouTube channel devoted to NBA and basketball analysis. This is our first time to meet Nick. As someone who needs to understand basketball better, I'm very excited to meet Nick and talk about B-Bell Breakdown. Nick, thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, tell us, to begin with, where you're calling in from. We've got lots of hoops paraphernalia in the background showing your hoops credentials. I'm seeing a prominent, I don't know, Michael Jordan, Steph Curry, some good stuff. Where are Dr. – is that Dr. J? Who's the top left there above above Jordan? That's – yeah, there's Dr. J, there's Oscar Robertson. You got Stanley from the office doing uh, some dribbling back there. <laughs> so where 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 are you right now, Nick? Uh, I'm based in Los Angeles. Okay. Um, give us a little bit of your background and tell us where B-Ball Breakdown came from. What is the origin story on your, your YouTube platform? Well, uh, that's a great question. And uh, so you know, I'm a basketball coach and I have a lot of experience uh, on a bench. Uh, I was a basketball manager at the University of Wisconsin. 
Uh, and so I had guys like uh, or bosses like Stu Jackson and, and uh, Stan Van Gundy and Sean Miller were all there uh, coaching. And I got a chance for a couple of years to just stare at them and listen to them and learn. And then mm-hmm. I was a high school coach uh, and stuff like that. So at some point, you know, you know what I think it was? It was the Bulls Celtics. I think I want to say 2009 first round playoff series. It went seven games. It was epic. It was Derrick Rose, maybe as a rookie. Uh, but a lot of the stuff that wasn't being pointed out was really troubling to me because there was, there was some just some bad defense being played. I believe Ray Allen scored like 50 points a game on every one of those games. And I couldn't believe how they were defending it. And so someone needed to try and break this down or point it out. And so at some point in 2010, as we realized that there were these, uh, you know, a number of internet or sorry, YouTube stars uh, that were making a living, just screwing around on the camera. Uh, a buddy of mine who represented a few of them said, well, let's reverse engineer what we learned from them. And we'll just create a channel on purpose that could become uh, popular uh, none of those things worked. All the things he told me to do, none of those worked. <laughs> like what's, um, what's the example that didn't work, Nick? Well, it didn't, he said, it doesn't matter what it sounds like. It doesn't matter what it looks like. Just, you know, because remember these are like Shay Carl and those guys way back in the day who were like handheld and it was all, you know, they were being funny and nutty and that worked really well. But when, when you're doing sports, what they really want is it needs to look high end. It needs to look as professional yeah. as, as ESPN yeah. or, or, right. or TNT. Okay. Okay, so but never you learn this by trial and error, and then how does it how does it grow? And what content were you trying to put out there? How were you packaging it? What did you learn as a as an instructor? So you know, I, I, I they're all still up there. You can watch it now, and I wouldn't recommend it because man, it was uh, I didn't know what the heck I was doing. But it, it, there is a similar format where uh, I, that I do it now, where I basically take you know NBA footage. And I will draw on top of it. I'll use slow motion. I'll zoom in. I'll do all sorts of things to help people understand what the offenses are running, why they scored, why the defense broke down, uh, what these different plays are. Uh, and, you know, it, it did take off pretty quickly. I think that there was always this, um, you know, desire for more information because back in the day, all you could do is sit on your couch and watch ESPN and they would tell you what was going on. There was no interaction. Even when Twitter was around, all those people on TV who had Twitter accounts, they would never respond to any tweets. You couldn't have any back and forth. So what really uh, made my channel come to life was I actually responded to all the comments and all the tweets. Oh. And uh, the tagline for B-Ball Breakdown is, it's not a channel, it's a conversation. You win. So um, <laughs> they, people really gravitated toward that. And that was a real big key. And I, you know, obviously it's much busier now. It's a lot harder to respond to all the comments, but I still try. Right. And that really is a key component to what built the channel up in the beginning. So Nick, I'm, I want to, I want to try to jump to the heart of the matter and we may or may not be able to do this, but if you were to give a lecture on what the average basketball fan misses or what the average basketball fan needs to know. And this is going to be drawn from the patterns you've emerged in the years of doing this. And you're talking about having done it, what, 15 years now? How long has this been going on? Well, I started, uh, actually, it's probably like uh, exactly May 9th, uh, 2010 or something like that. So it's been. Okay. So more than 10. I mean, this is, this is a lot of experience. And as you say, you're not just you know, speaking into the void, you're having conversations with thousands of millions of viewers and thousands of followers. You're in conversation with them. So what does that lecture look like? What are the key points? And you're telling us back what you've learned about what the average basketball audience is missing. What are the patterns and what they're missing and what they need to better understand? 
Well, one thing I want to point out is that, uh, you know, it was extremely fortuitous to start this channel in 2010 because it was the tail end of what we what basketball had been like for decades and decades before. And we've now morphed into this new modern era. And it happened pretty much right around then. You know, Kobe and Powell had won, I think, that title that year. And then the, then the Heatles come in. But we did. I was there at ground zero when the three point revolution took hold. So mm-hmm. everything I learned about basketball you know, sort of solidified, like I always say ground zero is 1994. That's when I graduated college, because all of the the knowledge everyone thought they had kind of like, you know, people who are my age or older, they haven't been able to progress as much and see what we really understand now about the game. So part of this is, is how we teach the game and how we train it radically different. So for instance, the jump shot, everything that you learned about the jump shot and how to shoot it was wrong. So if you ever saw like uh, really quickly, you ever saw Star Trek when they come back to pick up the whales, you know, and then remember, I don't know, Chekhov is in the operating room and then Bones bursts in. They're about to drill holes in his head. And he can't believe what they're doing. Like it's the dark ages. That's how I feel now when I walk into a gym and I see guys running suicides up and down the court and I see people teaching ba- uh, j- jump shots with their 10 toes pointing to the rim instead of turned, which is how all the great shooters did. But we all learned growing up square to the basket, right? So the, the whole revolution of this comes from the ability, ability to have like HD footage. We can go frame by frame. YouTube is that way we can download it and look at it. We finally understood what these players were really doing, and it wasn't anything like what the coaches were doing. And then, so that's one big part of what I do. And then the other part then becomes, okay, what are we running on offense? How, what's the most optimal way to, to attack? And if you're asking what the, you know, the mistakes tend to be, I will say this, the, the most vitriolic pushback I get, the most um, hostile ignorance, I suppose we can call it, is from <laughs> defense. When I'll show a defensive rotation and why it broke down, which in my mind is the most clear-cut, easiest thing to follow, easiest thing that people should understand, but for some reason it's triggering and people will try and just sort of tell me that I don't know anything about basketball and I can't even try to, you know, I try very patiently to explain, but that is one thing I've never been able to wrap my head around is why defensive rotations seem so clear to people who clearly don't know (laughs) what they're supposed to be. Huh. I, I, I wonder why that is confusing. Do people just want to make the attributions to offenses? They don't want to don't accept the fact that, you know, much of the time it's a defensive breakdown. Yeah, well, I also think that we all play, we all play defense, sixth grade basketball. You play defense. Some coach is going to teach you something about defense, right? So of course we know that offense, that's complicated. Okay. A lot of stuff going on. Defense, I see. I see. You're pushing them on the one thing they think they know. I will say this coach that the, so much of the, I won. Dialogue has advanced, and this is probably true across all sports. I mean, the dialogue is getting more sophisticated, Um, you know, maybe not so much on TV, maybe a little bit on TV, but the writing about it has gotten more sophisticated. And much of it, what I seem to run into, the first line below just the superficial stuff is often about the way teams are defending key players. And, you know, what are they going to do on the pick and roll? Or this is like in the like regular dialogue now in a way that I don't think it was even 10 years ago, probably. So what? let's start there and just say, what should we better understand about how teams deploy their defenses? And, you know, we, it is such a superstar league, and we, and we know it's so clear what a difference the best players can make. They can almost carry a team, even at the NBA. So how to defend that guy is a big deal. What should we know just on that front, just to kind of raise our level of understanding and comprehension as we watch the playoffs? Well, that, that, that's not a great question. There's so much to – 
to, to actually connect to what we did know in the past defensively, which is still really prominent. And I wanted to say one thing. I have all these books from the 20s and the 30s from coaches. They're still running a lot of that offense today, which is really fascinating to me that they were so smart back then and they understood what we should be doing now. But to talk about defensively uh, or, or how we're supposed to defend, because obviously if you chart the offensive ratings of teams and the average across you know decades and decades, it continually goes up. And right now it's rapidly going up. So clearly what we're doing defensively doesn't work. Uh, in fact, I invented a new defense, believe it or not, and you will see it. Uh, I, it was run by a D1 coach uh, on the court a little bit this spring or this uh, in this winter. Uh, I guarantee I'm going to make an admission this summer and right now to make sure someone else runs it or more people run it. But uh, we can get into that in a second. But let me just go over a couple of the fundamental ideas about what the three-point revolution has done, which is basically uh, allowed teams that are less talented to compete. They can level the playing field by teaching shooting properly and spacing the floor and getting open shots. So it's especially true at the collegiate level, right? Or high school level. It's just remarkably true at the high school level. Yeah. And there's a reason why we're seeing number ones get beat now by number 16s, right? Or number twos get beat by 15s. Because a lot of those coaches who've been coaching for decades, they think, you know, there's no reason to change. They've, they make a lot of money. Uh, they won a lot of games, but what they don't realize is a lot of those defenses like pack line, for instance, is predicated on uh, a player who catches the ball and then rips through and looks and then rips through again and looks. Well, we now all attack on the catch. We do what the you know the beautiful game that we saw the Spurs start in 2014 and what the Euros people were doing for a long time. And it's a lot like even tennis. Think about tennis when you do a split step before the, when the guy hits the ball back to you. Well, we just do the same split step now as we're catching it and you go. So all of those defensive principles that they were teaching don't really work. Now you're behind, you're out of position. So if you allow, and then the big one here is middle penetration. So if you allow the ball to get into the middle, what happens? The weak side guys have to step over and rotate and help. And then, boom, now there's kickouts for threes. When in, in back in the day, they might have tried to shoot a, a mid-range that's contested or a contested layup. They they get in the air looking like that, and then they throw it out for an open three. It's a much better percentage than a very highly contested layup, especially at the college level. So um, the teams that deny middle are the ones that have more success. Uh, also, helping one pass away. So if my man is 15 feet away from the ball – I can't go over and help if he starts to penetrate and beat his man, because if I do that, it's a high school play. The guy can easily just pick the ball up, throw it to my man, and he's open. They all We all know how to shoot quickly now, um, and that shot will go up and will go in a lot more. So those two concepts, no middle and not helping one pass away, go a long way toward helping your defense prevent open three-point shots. And I do feel like the analytics people do not understand this. And they tend to chalk up uh, three-point shooting to just variation, to, uh, to uh, variability. Um, mm-hmm. That's not even the right mm-hmm. word. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, variance. Yeah. Variance. And, um, and it's not. I don't think so. I think that there are s- specific defensive principles you can have that you can stick to uh, that can remove a lot of the histrionic, crazy, screaming, yelling coach thing, that anger, which we also talk a lot about communication-wise, which is another set story. Uh, but you can remove a lot of that just anger and frustration that coaches play uh, or coach with uh, because you can stick to the principles in an unemotional way and know that, OK, the guy hit it. He had a hand up. You did what you needed to do. And, you know, they'll miss 60 percent of those or 65 or 70 percent. And you move on. And then that should give you enough wins across the season. Uh, well, let's talk about the other half of that, which was denying middle penetration. You can I can imagine that there are some teams with such dominant defenders that a an individual player can can do that. But. Those guys are relatively rare. 
what what are other tactics that teams use to deny and and what's an example of a team that's especially good at denying middle penetration without having that dominant defender that everyone's just going to be scared of Right. Well, you know, in my mind, if you had a dominant like a Bill Russell, people would often argue, well, you force him to the middle because that's where he is. But in today's game, even, you know, the eighth, ninth, tenth men, they're good on the dribble now. They'll draw fouls on that guy. So if you want to funnel your, your, uh, your, uh, the, the offense into the middle to a guy who you perceive as a good, you know, big man defender, he's just going to foul out or be in foul trouble a lot more now. We know how to teach that, right? We know how to teach to get into the body, okay. draw the contact okay. that, that didn't exist. 30 years ago, right? Okay. If you were a, a, a team that didn't have a lot of uh, talent, uh, t- coaches would just throw up their hands and try and slow the game down and lim- limit possessions because that was another one of those ridiculous things, which simply just delays the blowout to the third quarter. If you can teach your kids to shoot, which everybody should be able to do that to some degree, and you can teach your kids how to in- you know, initiate contact to draw fouls, then all of a sudden those teams that are bigger and faster and stronger – uh, it, it becomes a lot more of a level playing field, but uh, it's that's a hard sell. And I've still been trying to get into that. And I get it. Sometimes you have a high school program and you just don't have any talent. And they can barely catch the ball. I get it. But if it's a varsity program and it's somewhat normal high school, uh, these are the concepts you need to be able to do and coach. And you can't it's, it's no longer acceptable to just sort of say, oh, well, we, we can't. There's nothing we can do about that. So uh, those are the concepts. So we're talking to Nick Houseman. Nick is president of B-Ball Breakdown. You can follow that both on YouTube or Twitter's Twitter account. Handle is B-Ball Breakdown. Also, YouTube is B-Ball Breakdown. Easy to track him down. Nick, give us a little bit of your analysis of the playoff series that we're looking at right now. Um, what, and again, just in, in terms of making us more educated consumers of these playoff series. Sure. What what do you think is interesting? What are the dynamics that you're paying attention to in the in the four series that we have? Yeah, well, I mean, all eyes are right now on the Lakers and the Warriors uh, because we got LeBron and, and Curry at it again. And we haven't had the Lakers and Warriors play each other in the playoffs for since the 90s or early 90s. And um, it's, an, it's a fascinating series because um, the Lakers are not built to beat the Warriors. And in the regular season, if you outscored your other team, by six or more threes. If you made six or more threes on the other team, you won, I think it was 83% of the time. Now, the Warriors did that last night, for instance, and all the other stats were relatively even, and they end up losing by three. So it's a really confounding series where things are, and then it it happened the other game too, where they're outscoring them from the behind the line. Uh, There are obviously some some outliers here that the Lakers do where they they tend to get a lot more free throws than anybody else. And I had done a video about that a couple months ago because it was historical, uh, not unprecedented, but a bit historical for how much uh, how many more free throws they were attempting than their their opponent. But, um, you know, if you just take a quick dive into it and actually look at the footage. Uh, it has nothing to do with whether a team drives a lot. That was a really big screaming point. Our team drives all the time and they don't get fouls. Well, it's like, well, it's possible if you look at all those drives, they don't get fouled. It, you know, there's nothing to call. Um, but when you have a team like the Lakers who, A, uh, draw a lot of fouls because Anthony Davis is always shooting around the basket. Um, there's another guy they have on their team and his name is LeBron James. Have you heard of him? <laughs> because he draws fouls too. And he puts a lot of pressure on the defense in, the, in transition. Uh, and then they, they don't foul. They actually defend very, very well, and they do not foul. So that's the other part of it, right? It's not just you shooting a lot of free throws. It's not. It's limiting the opponent to having mm-hmm. free throws. Now you go mm-hmm. against the Warriors. The Warriors never get free throws. Right? They're one of the lower, you know, free throw generating teams. 
And that's a whole other conversation, whether you think Curry deserves more free throws or not, but it's been the thing for his, almost his whole career where they just don't shoot a lot of free throws. So this is a perfect storm where they can shoot really well and they can clearly outshoot the Lakers and it should give them enough of an advantage at least to win. But, you know, one shot in one game and two shots in another game and suddenly the Warriors are down three to one uh, and probably uh, I, I don't think they're, they're going to pull it out. Do you think this, the way you're describing it, it sounds like it's more of a matchup thing than it is about LA playing better or getting their, you know, getting their horses to back or whatever. What is your assessment right now? We were just talking about the fact that the Lakers are the betting favorite to win the West. And, you know, this is after barely making the playoffs. I know. How much of the, what we're seeing now is, you know, variance. How much of it is this matchup you're talking about? Or how much of it is uh, maybe the Lakers are going to be the best team out of the West in the end? Well, do you have a lot of Lakers fans uh, for your show? We have so many fans, it's hard to differentiate, really. I mean, it's like, they're like one of the most popular franchises in the league, right? Yeah, odds are. We were base rate people, Coach, so we're going to say yes. Okay, because you might have a few less after this. But um, here's the thing. Anthony Davis had proven he, that he was basically a, a Bill Russell clone in a lot of this series, right? There was nothing they could do near him when he, they shot the ball in the, in, in the paint when he was around. He was blocking it. They were missing it, whatever. It's amazing, right? What they figured that they figured something out in game two, which is if they can bring him out uh, and they run action with his man, either as a handoff or as a ball screen, they can eviscerate the defense. I have that. This is what I have already ready to go for the video I'm going to do today. I've got 21 clips of just layups and open threes that they continually get. Even once they miss, they miss like three layups that were no one was even near him because Anthony Davis had to go up to the three point line to try and stop the three point shooting. Are they scarred? Are they scared? Are they seeing shadows? Well, maybe like, okay, I want to give credit to the Lakers for something. Right. But when you watch professional basketball players make these mistakes, and yeah. throw the ball away under without very little, uh, you know, pressure. I, I, you have to wonder, like, what is happening other than the fact that this is what the Warriors are. They just have, a, they're so mistake prone and, uh, they, they have moments where they look like they're extremely well coached and other moments where they don't look like they have a coach at all. And by the <laughs> way, that applies to Steph Curry and Clay and, and Draymond. And I, and I, I, I sympathize immensely with coach Steve Kerr because. They've all been together. He's not going to be able to grab back those guys by the shoulders and say, Hey, stop throwing the ball over. It's like they're, they, they've transformed like that relationship has gotten so far beyond that, that he didn't need to trust him. So coach that you have talked mostly about the West because it has been the flashier series, but it would take a flashy series to outshine the Sixers Celtics. And we on the East coast and with the local team in the semi, the conference semis are very curious about that. That one's tied up. That one's 2-2. It actually ought to be the one we're paying attention to. What can you tell us about that series? Well, it shouldn't be 2-2. Uh, you know, now uh, the shot that James Harden made that basically became the game winner was one of those boneheaded, uh, subtle plays that nobody was talking about, which is uh, Jalen Brown starts the possession trying to, de- trying to deny uh, Harden. He gets the concept. Harden, don't, don't get the ball there. Don't let him catch the ball. But then it goes to MB. It helps. And he yes. comes flying off of him and lets them get a wide open three. Remember, if, if Embiid scores, it's a tie game. You have 12 seconds yeah. left of a timeout yeah. to set up a play and yeah. win the game. Instead, you give him the only way to lose. And uh, that's one of those instances where it's like, what is happening on the bench? What is happening in his brain? Uh, and that could cost him the series. Mm-hmm. What, are you sold on the Sixers? I mean, the, the Celtics were the favorite so much of the season. Celtics are the Bucks, right? And here come the Sixers, hardens up and down. 
where would you where would you put the Sixers' chances at this point, other than just hey, they're two two, anything can happen. I mean, I think that's where I'm at. I think this can go either way. It's probably 50-50. I'm definitely not sold on the Celtics. I think that Marcus Smart tends to be way too much of a wild card, although he did great, and he really was instrumental. But you can count on him to do the kind of things that you see the Warriors do uh, just as much. And I, I, I actually kind of look forward to that, but I also pray yeah. that he can kind of keep it together and just play, play smart, like his name. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to neglect the other worthy teams. There's lots of the, the Nuggets. Suns are interesting. Heat's interesting. But for now, we have to let you go. This has been a lot of fun. We want to pitch your work again. This is Nick Helselman, president of B-Ball Breakdown. Great instructional stuff online, YouTube videos. You can also follow him on Twitter, B-Ball Breakdown. Thank you, Nick, for being with us. Appreciate that. Thanks, Scott. Thanks so much. That is the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to the second half of Wharton Moneyball. We have another interview segment now. We have a new guest. We're delighted to welcome Corey Yates. Corey is the co-founder and CEO of Real Analytics. That's real with two E's, as in movie real, Real Analytics, sports tech and data company using video to measure athleticism, helping coaches and personnel directors better evaluate their athletes with new measures. And we're very interested to hear more from Corey. Corey, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Happy to be on. Well, we've got the whole crew on this side. Well, that's not true. Today's whole crew, though we're one man short, one person short today, Eric Bradlow's away. Shane and Adi are in here. And we're delighted. We're always delighted to get a chance to talk a little football any month of the year. We were nine days into May without talking about football. So we had to ready, remedy that problem. Corey, Tell us a little bit about your background and how you got Real Analytics going before we dive into what you guys are doing. Absolutely. So kind of have an eclectic background when you think about Real Analytics and and kind of what we do to help college football programs build championship rosters. But my background, I'm a former college football player, played at the Division II level at Texas A&M and Commerce 2017 National Champions, go Lions. Um, But I was too (laughs) short and too slow to play at the professional level. And so right after my playing days, I went right into coaching as a graduate assistant, did the grunt work there, um, coached the same position group, which was defensive backs, uh, coached the same position group there for a brief cup of coffee. Uh, But then I went out into corporate America where I spent the majority of my corporate America experience as a merchandising executive. Uh, running multi-billion dollar businesses ranging from consumer electronics to exterior paint uh, and in-stock kitchens. And so that's where my data analytics and business analytics background comes from, because everything kind of I did in in that space is part of my DNA. Uh, The decisions we made were really data driven. And so when you think about that and you think about the sport of football in particular, 2019, when my son was going through the recruiting process, fortunately, he did overcome my DNA. Um, so he's, he's a lot bigger, stronger, faster. He's playing Division One ball. But when he was going through the recruiting process, I quickly learned that some of the same tools that were being used to evaluate players when I was coming out in high school, albeit 
I was lightly recruited in the early 90s, the same tools were being used to recruit uh, kids in the modern modern day era. And so I thought there was an opportunity to uh, integrate technology to help coaches be more efficient in terms of talent identification and then to lean into data um, that's generated from technology. And we'll talk more about that later, but to lean into data that's generated from technology to produce objective evaluations so that they can actually identify the talent appropriately or more accurately, because there's a major opportunity uh, when it comes to recruiting and identifying and evaluating talent in the, in the sport of football and sports in general. Well, tell us a little bit about what you're doing in particular. So you're mostly, you're, you're focused on college programs. And so historically that has meant high school recruiting and increasingly these days, that means essentially college uh, analysis. It's a little bit like the pros, the pros for a long time have had both college scouting and pro scouting. Now colleges have high school recruiting and I'm not sure they call it college recruiting, but certainly college scouting. Um, presumably started on the high school front. So tell us, right, you know, the big technology in the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years has been huddle and huddle competitors, where essentially every high school player now has his own huddle or her own huddle. And, and now personnel guys and coaches can dial up anybody from around the country and look at an athlete they would have had to travel to see before. So what does, how does this line up against that? How does it complement that or compete with that? Um, and, and what other technologies are out there and are emerging out there? And, and for the moment, let's say with the high school recruiting side. Absolutely. So you think about Huddle and what they've been able to do. They've been able to take, you know, when I was coming out in high school, we had to send VH, I'm dating myself. I had to send my VH H test, uh, VHS tape out to college coaches so that they can see my highlights. And what Huddle has been able to do is to digitize that. And they've done a phenomenal job of democratizing highlight films so that mm-hmm. college re- college players and college or college coaches, I should say, they can identify and find players virtually anywhere in America because their film is readily available. But in that presents a problem. Now you have over 7 million minutes worth of high school highlight films from a football perspective. And there's absolutely no way that a college program, I don't care how big their budget is, can go through that many minutes of data um, and film to be able to evaluate players um, effectively. And that's where that's where real analytics kind of comes into play to kind of help that. And so. Mm-hmm. With our technology, what we do is we do a couple of things. One, we are extracting athleticism data from the video. So that's number one. So Huddle is not a competitor of ours. Um, In fact, we we, we like Huddle because we can go out and we can access these, these athletes' highlight film and generate the athleticism metrics that we know from our research and interviewing over 150 college coaches and personnel executives what they're looking for when they're turning that tape on to evaluate a player. So we're measuring their in-game speed. We're measuring their acceleration, change of direction. And then we also have position-specific metrics that are important for certain positions. So, for example, if we're, if we're evaluating a wide receiver, we're going to be able to generate and understand 
what that average arch of separation is that that receiver is creating when he's running a route. And so those are some of the athleticism metrics that we generate. And then we roll all of those metrics up into a proprietary scoring model that we call our in-game athleticism score that is used to project players from high school to college and then also from college to the NFL. Okay, so you've got two very different components there and very different challenges there. Let's take them one by one. The second piece was the forecasting piece. Once you've got these measures, how do they aggregate up? And you could imagine just the scores themselves are valuable because the historically the coaches and the personnel guys have been grabbing those measures and they don't necessarily have a model. They, they, they have their model in their head. So even just the first stage is helpful. Um, the first stage sounds hard and technology's improved in recent years. We, we think of that as being a, um, you know, if, if you have, if you can put wearables on players, that's one thing. Or if you have cameras like in stadium capturing movement real time, that's another way to do about it. You're talking about a third way, which is some computer vision process where you're taking video that's been recorded and you're running it through some kind of software program to identify the things you're telling it to identify. So you can take and, and well done. This can be, you know, any video, the better the video, the better the measures, but basically any video can be hit with these computer vision programs, which are always improving to get these measures. And are we thinking about that? Right. Yeah. And I mean, just to kind of clarify on the, on the end of that, like the video, how, how much the extent of the video capture do you need kind of standardized? Like, can it kind of be any camera from any angle? You know, you could just like do this on a YouTube video of a football game, or does it have to kind of be a relatively standardized camera setup? Great, great questions. And, and you guys are thinking about it the right way. So essentially, when you think about huddle, when, when most people, and I talked about that over 7 million minutes worth of highlight film that's out there today. When I see that, when I turn the tape on, we see data, right? That's what our folks internally see when they turn on um, video, is that look at all that data that we can generate from our computer vision technology. And that's mm-hmm. exactly what we're doing. So to answer your question, when you think about the type of video that we actually need to extract the data, right? So we basically need uh, high definition. So anything that's 720p or higher. And if you think about today, that's pretty much everything, right? I mean, I can record that, that level of detail on my phone today. And then we also need to be able to see the, the field that they're playing on. And so... You know, it needs to be press box height, right? Um, and as long as it's press box height, and then as long as we can see the players and the field, we're copacetic, right? We can generate the athleticism metrics that we need to do so. And then when you think about the all 22 camera angle that's being used primarily at the collegiate level and also at the professional level, that's just ideal. But our algorithms, we built our algorithms kind of bottoms up, if you will. And we said, look, if we can crack the code and to be able to generate athleticism metrics utilizing, you know, standard huddle uh, film, right, that's being recorded by, you know, folks that may or may not be professional uh, uh, camera people, For then sure. we've got something that we can really work with and to be able to extract the data when we're using all 22 becomes a pretty easy lift for us. And that's mm-hmm. where we are with the technology today. 
So to answer your question, as long as it's 720p or higher, as long as it's press box height, right, where we can actually see the the field, and as long as the camera is not kind of doing this deal, which we do get some of that, um, our algorithms are calibrated to calculate the metrics. You're saying as long as the camera's not moving around, you're waving your hands, saying as long as the camera's not moving around in the wind or with the stadium. um, So you need to see the field, presumably, because it gives you an objective measure of distance, which will allow you to do things like speed. Is that is that right? That's correct. That's correct. So So how how hard is it to do this these days? And 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 it may. My sense is that computer vision is improving all the time, and I've had my chips on computer vision because, you know, you just bet on that technology is eventually going to get good enough to not need the tracking mechanisms. But. I don't have a great sense of how hard it is to do what you're talking about right now. You're talking about, you mentioned a few possibilities, game speed, um, separation. How sophisticated is the programming required to get that off of, you know, as Shane said, a wide range of cameras from a wide range of angles, and you're deploying more or less the same algorithm. How sophisticated was this challenge? Pretty sophisticated, right? And so when we... We we founded the company in 2019, Alfonso Thurman and I, and we weren't sure that it could be done, frankly. You know, we said, look, what if what we saw on Sunday with next gen stats that's powered by Zebra Technologies, what if we were able to do that, you know, at the high school level, right? But without the expensive wearable devices. And we talked to coaches and personnel executives and said, look, this is kind of what we think could be valuable, right? Whereby we're quantifying all the athletic traits that you look for when you're evaluating player on tape. Um, but, but is it valuable? And the answer was, was absolutely. Um, the question was, is can it be done? And, and mm-hmm. frankly, we weren't sure. And so we, we actually were fortunate enough to uh, bring on and hire what we consider the, 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 the best of the best. And when it comes to developers, and with this technology, computer vision technology, and we believe that we have a best-in-class t- uh, technology that's now patented um, US by the USPTO um, as in, in the past month, and we've cracked the code. And so we've benchmarked our tech in terms of its accuracy relative to what we consider best-in-class, which is Zebra Technologies or what's used by the NFL and next-gen stats. So we're plus or minus 2% in terms of our ability to track players and produce the corresponding metrics that we track. Um, and then more specifically, that means we're able to identify the player within six inches of where he actually is on the field, again, exclusively through video without any wearable devices. So the short answer is uh, it's, it's, it's not an easy, easy putt. So to your, your, your calibration or your, or your, or your uh, reliability test is, is you've got a benchmark. The gold standard is tracking technology. So you could, for example, you know, the measures that that the NFL is producing with NGS or presumably you could get them. So you could take video of those games and produce your own measures. And that provide a good test of your technology. Is that what you're suggesting? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's basically, we use the, the next gen stats as, as training data. That's our, that's what we use to train our algorithm. Right. Okay. Because, again, it's it's known known speeds. Um, and then we, we build off of that. And okay. uh, that's where that's how we're, we're able to benchmark 
and determine how accurate we are relative to, again, the gold standard, which we consider next-gen stats. And then also our customers tell us that we're accurate. So if you think about uh, some of the customers that we service, major college football programs from Kansas State, University of Washington. Um, we're also working with Deion Sanders and, and folks at Colorado now. Um, they tell us that we're accurate. How do, how do they know that? It's because they pressure tested us before hiring us. So mm-hmm. they said, hey, here's this video. You tell us how fast this player is, right? And we'll tell you whether or not you're right or wrong. Yeah, um, right. And, and we've, we've, we passed the sniff test. Okay. Yeah, and I mean, that actually sounds maybe par- partly answers to the question. I, I, I was going to ask kind of that, you know, if, if, if you're benchmarking against sort of the, the Zebra one, which is employed the NFL, and they are only using essentially the all 22 video, I would assume, themselves, you're kind of benchmarking, like, I guess it's it's hard to benchmark your performance in the the harder additional tasks you do beyond the zebra, which is Shane, trying, Shane, trying to kind a, of video look, capture these like, you know, great, you know, grainier, like not all 22 available high school games. And so you a high school, you get a high school kid's dad, give him a camera, yeah. walk halfway up the stadium to press box height to the high school stadium and have him hold it on his shoulder for. And, and, and I guess, so I, I guess my joke, but this is a form of question, I guess when you're calibrating kind of these kind of more sort of cutting edge endeavors you're doing in terms of kind of the data quality, is it really just, do you, do you only have just kind of anecdotal experience like Dion telling you, you got the guy right or whatever, or do you have like, is there a way of benchmarking that stuff? There is. So when you think about, uh, so you've got the NFL that's using RFID technology, right? Very expensive to outfit the stadium and then you've got the sensors or the chips in the in the pads that the players are using extremely expensive to do at the collegiate level they're wearing uh, they're using gps technology and so those are your wearable devices uh some of the more popular brands are catapult and so we can actually compare our data with the catapult data right and that's what the colleges are using they're saying hey you know, real analytics, tell us how fast this player ran on this particular play. They know it. They don't tell us what the answer is, right? And they can't share it, by the way, because it's, it's, it's you know, violation of privacy. But they say, hey, tell us how fast this player is, right? We give them, we, we produce the video. We tell them how fast the player is, right? And then they come back and say, yeah, you guys were, you guys were, 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 were spot on. Okay. I'll give you a really good example. We actually posted, this was probably in 2020, I believe. We posted a video of Troy Pride Jr.'s pro day when he was at the, the University of Notre Dame. And he was running his 40. And we put, we overlaid our technology and we calculated how fast he, he, he his max speed on that particular 40. A couple of weeks later, we get a phone call and it's there it's their player personnel director. And he goes, how the hell did you guys do that? How'd you know how fast <laughs> he went? And we didn't know that he was wearing a, he didn't, we didn't know he's wearing a catapult device. So we went back and we were like, well, yeah, we've got this, this, this cool algorithm and we're able to kind of do this. And then we went back and looked at the video and there he is with the catapult vest on. And that mm-hmm. let us know that, you know what, we were pretty damn accurate when it comes to, being able to determine how fast he ran. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that as, as so much more of recruiting has moved from high school to college, 
do do the what is the status of teams access to catapult information for other schools is it the case that you have to subscribe or they can't get it they only have it on their own players i see okay so yeah so they only have it on their own so you're invaluable i mean consider what happens you know a thousand guys hit the transfer portal in december and there's like a a couple weeks window and it's a feeding frenzy and timing is kind of everything and these personnel groups i mean some schools are just coaches and other schools are personnel groups in the middle of signing the first class they've got to also evaluate all of a sudden an unpredictable thousand athletes that arrived in the transfer portal so presume this is a huge opportunity for real analytics is that am i thinking about that right yeah you're thinking about it absolutely the right ways and so i'll i'll talk about the transfer portal piece and then i want to go back to what you mentioned earlier which is very different at the collegiate level versus the professional level, specifically the NFL, right? NFL teams, all 32 teams, they've got the data on, on all the players, right? Yeah. Not the, yeah. not the case when it comes to, to college, right? And so when you think about the transfer portal specifically, what's beautiful about what we do, right? And, and my biased opinion, what's beautiful about what we do is when we track these high school players, there is a tremendous amount of value in not only being able to track them and then kind of measure them, but we also put everything into context for our, our clients, right? So we've got over 15,000 players in the database. So when we say a kid reaches 20.7 miles per hour, we're able to tell our clients what that actually means. How fast is that relative to his peers? Is that in the top 20%? Is that in the bottom 20%? Somewhere in between? Yep. Right. But we're giving them that context, which is critically important. Also, what's important is understanding what success looks like, because if you don't know what success looked like, you can't predict it. And so what's beautiful about computer vision technology is we're able to perform retrospective analysis on successful players, both at the collegiate level as well as the professional level. And that's really where the power comes into play in terms of what we're able to do with curating this data. So I don't know, Kate, who's, who's one of your favorite players in the recent past? Recent past. Uh, well, what, 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 at what position do you prefer to what's, where's your technology best? Sure. Let's say, let's say a wide receiver. Well, let's pick one of the LSU guys that uh, has done so well in recent years, or how about the Alabama, which of the Alabama receivers is the best of the recent crop? We'll we'll go with let's say let's go with Amari Cooper, right? I'm a big Cowboys fan. We'll go with Amari Cooper, Good. even though he's a former Cowboy. Once a Cowboy, as a Cowboy, but right. And so what we're able to do is we said, okay, Amari Cooper's had really good success at the NFL level, right? What was his functional movement and what made him special or unique when he was in high school? So now we can go back and we can reverse engineer. Okay, your Amari Coopers. We can reverse engineer. Let me let me let me let me stop you because you said the key word there, and that is what makes them unique. And we, as statisticians and instructors, are always jumping on these sample selection issues. You would only be able to tell what's unique about Amari Cooper if you're comparing him to his peers at the time, right? So it's not just what Amari Cooper is, but it's what Amari Cooper is that separates him from the average athlete or his peers at the time. You got it. Right. And so what what we've done is we've said, look, let's start 
with the answer in mind. And if we start with the answer in mind and work backwards, right, we can build a foundation upon which we can start to build a model that can predict players' ceiling. And so we said, all right, let's take your Amari Coopers. Let's take your um, your Cooper Cups. Let's take your Julio Jones, right? Reverse engineer them, understand, measure, right? Track and measure, you know, what the coaches told us when we did our 150 hours worth of interviews, right? Of what's important when they're turning on the tape and they're evaluating the player. So we heard things like, you know, can he separate? You know, of, of course, you know, does he does he have hands? Does he have top end speed? Things of that nature. So we measured all of those. Right. And then we said, OK, here are here are the metrics or the variables that correlate to success. And here's how much we should weight them. And then we pressure test that with players who may not have had success. Right. And in theory, what should happen is, is those players that that had success, they should score high, right? And the players that didn't have success should score low. And to the extent that the model didn't do that, you know, we tweak and dial the levers, right? Until we feel feel good about it. And then we start scaling by running players through the model. And then that's when the machine learning kind of kicks in because every time we update and add a player to our database, the, the algorithms are getting smarter in terms of being able to predict the player's upside potential. And so that's kind of how we started. And that's that's really the the power behind the technology, in my opinion. It's really cool tech, but what's cooler to me is the data that we're able to generate because that data we've learned is predictive. Mm-hmm. So that's our that's our stock and trade, and and we don't have time to dig into it as much as we'd like. But it's a really cool enterprise, and would be happy to talk with you more on another occasion or maybe even offline that's the you're definitely getting into our world when you've got a, such a fascinating data set that you created and you're tackling a problem that many people are interested in this forecasting future performance um it's neat if you're going to get a little purchase in that area um what's something you've learned from dealing with the georgias and k-states and u-dubs of the world about evaluation what's something that you're doing differently now because they're your clients and you thought you'd be doing when you started out? Great question. I think it really boils down to helping the programs understand that one plus one equals three, right? And what I mean by that is we're generating and providing athleticism data from game tape, but at the same time, in order to improve your hit rate, you really need to pair that with the institutional knowledge that the coaches and evaluators have, right? And so, you know, our projection accuracy is about hovers about 75 percent, uh, which is which is pretty, pretty darn good when considering the, the industry averages about 33 percent. But that means there's 25 percent of the time that we're missing. Right. And that's why we always encourage our, our, our customers to, hey, here's the IGA score, in-game athleticism score for this particular player. And here's how he projects to the next level but you still have to do the homework and still have to turn the tape on. Right. And there will be things that you, you'll you notice as a, you know, having a trained eye looking and studying thousands of players, you know, that institutional knowledge just, just cannot go away. So again, we believe that one plus one equals three, that you need to pair both 
film and data in order to maximize your hit rate. Mm -hmm. Corey, the way you're talking about it, if I, if I had to bet, I would bet that the greatest value would lie in basically where the, where the, where the naked eye is getting it wrong in both directions, where uh, guys who have been missed or underscored, under-evaluated, yet your numbers show they're super athletic and flip it around, guys who are thought to be high-value recruits who are shown to be really weak on the athleticism measure. I would think they're just, it's a wonderful tool for identifying misses on both ends of the spectrum. Absolutely. And, and so when we do our talent reviews, oftentimes, and, and, and when we do our kickoff talent review, I tell the coaches, I'm like, look, there are going to be times where you're going to look at me like I've got a hole in my head when I present a kid to you and I show you his IGA score and it's in the 80s or it's in the 90s. And you're going to say, what in the world? That's healthy. That's Our right. clients should disagree with this 10 to 20 percent of the time, because if they <laughs> if they don't, we're not adding any value. Yeah. Right. And if they agree with this 100 percent of the time. Or if they disagree with this 100 percent of the time, that means that probably something is wrong with our with our algorithm. And so uh, we have that healthy debate. Right. And again, that's where we turn the tape on. We serve the data. It's up to to our clients to determine how they move forward with that with that with that prospect. Um, But our job is to challenge their um, biases, to remove biases, if you will. Um, and also to answer questions that they may not have answered. So I'll give you one quick example. One of the biggest challenges that coaches struggle with is understanding how fast a player is relative to the competition that he's Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. Right? And so you you often, before we started this, coaches would say, he looks really fast, but I just don't know how fast he is. Is he fast or is competition slow? Well, if he's running 20.5, five miles per hour, that's 20.5 miles per hour. I don't care what level right. of competition you're playing. Right. And that's what translates. And and you're able to assess that in game. It's not the stopwatch time. There are athletes who, who, dis, who play differently, both higher, faster, and slower than their stopwatch time. And you're able to get the actual thing that matters. That's, that's cool. Um, all right, Corey, we should let you go. Thank you for sharing with us today. Wish you the best with the work that you're doing. And I just want to say real quickly at the end, you played for Texas A&M commerce, which back in the day, East Texas state, I grew up watching East Texas state play Angelo state in San Angelo, Texas, back in the Lone Star conference. So I'm familiar with the team back in the day, but um, congrats awesome. on the national championship a few years later, Corey, Corey Yates, real analytics. Thanks for being with us today, Corey. Thanks for having me on. Take care. All right, guys, that has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. This is Cade Massey-Oston today with my longtime collaborators and friends, Adi Weiner and Shane Jensen. Eric Bradlow is out today. He will be back. We are rolling into the fourth quarter, back to open lines. We just finished up a couple of interviews. Q2, Nick Houselman talking about basketball. Q3, Corey Yates talking about offseason football, college football, no less. A little recruiting action from Corey. 
gentlemen, we've not yet talked about baseball. Talked a lot of hockey in Q1, a little bit of basketball. Talk some more basketball there with Nick. No baseball. I would like to start out Q4 and our baseball conversation reading a tweet from one of our listeners asking us a question, asking our take on a little bit of statistical analysis that was done. I think Adi's had a chance to dig into this thing. Very curious what he's going to say. But let's start it with a tweet. This is, I don't know. This is about a week ago, I think. Infinite Jest, which is a delightful handle on, on Moneyball. Infinite, like infinity, but infinite, the name Nick Jest on Twitter. He says, hey, at Wharton Moneyball, what do you think of this? What are some tweaks to the data set that might give you a clearer picture of favorability? He suggests a few tweaks. What's he talking about? He's talking about a tweak from Jay Kuda on May 5. Jay says, this is a stat I made up that shows how much more home plate umpires have hurt or helped teams. He's got a formula for how much home plate. And it ranks. He's going to create a statistic and then rank the whole league top to bottom by how much they've either been hurt or helped by the home plate umpire. Leads with the Braves at plus 51, Indians plus 45, Brewers plus 29, so, Yanks this plus is, 29. This is, this, is, this, is like, uh, this is like kind of in terms of like strikes that should have been balls or balls that should have been strikes. Yeah, exactly. His so this formula is like a, is, it's like a pitcher framing thing? Exactly. He no said his like pitcher fr- framing. What? He's, he's, not, he's not attributing it. So that what you're bringing up is why they why, – what causes Yeah, Yeah, I, I mean, I guess basically like we're kind of – Unless you really believe umpires are biased against a particular team, the extent that they're signaled, it's got presumably catcher framing. So let me give you the actual, let me give you what his stat is. His stat is minus balls called when strikes, when they're hitting, minus strikes called balls when pitching, and plus balls called strikes when pitching. That's it. So a high number means, high number means getting the calls, low number means not getting the calls. And what he finds is but a he just as a rate, not a total. Right? Count, count. He just count. It's a count. So it Weird. ranges from plus fifty-one to minus eighty-six, led by the Braves of plus fifty-one and the and the and the. I always want to say Senators. Remind the Nationals. That's the Washington team. Is the Nationals minus eighty-six? So that's Adi, not even the Washington-based team. Most people <laughs> struggle with kids. Um, well, one, Jay, you know, cool. Jay's going to get us going by a, a little rough stat, and then we're going to oh, yeah. work with it, or we can criticize it or whatever. And Infinite Jess, thank you for calling it to our attention. Now, let's turn it over to Odd, who's had a chance to think about so, it. So, so uh, let's just point out, um, obviously, it centers at zero by definition, um, but plus 51 is the net positive. So the, the uh, Angels have gotten 51 more calls in their favor than against on both sides. And the, the, the worst is the, uh, the it would be the, the Nationals at minus 86. So the first question is, that a, does that actually a lot? And two, two questions to answer is, one, does that amount of call differential actually have an impact? And the answer is, uh, yes, it does. So when you accumulate them, that actually, in summary, can matter. There are games that have been decided by bad calls or in either direction. And we all know that anyone who watches the game can say, can see that a bad call, particularly in an appropriate spot, could have an enormous yeah, I, No, and I mean, so, I don't want to interrupt from, from your employee, but, but it's all about whether it happens at a relevant spot. I mean, and the, the reason I kind of reacted to this even being like a count stat as opposed to a rate stat is a team like the Red Sox, whose pitchers have to throw a lot more pitches 
<laughs> than a team that has good pitching, for example. You know, it's it's kind of weird. It's like I it's like, you know, almost like in a mechanistic sense, the ideal team for accumulating this stat would be one where the pitchers are terrible. So he has to throw a ton of pitches, but the catcher is really good at framing. So he's able to kind of grab a few here and so, there. So but those really- teams aren't going to necessarily have the consequential game changing situations. Yeah, so you, you point up two things. First is this this counting set isn't isn't weighted by value, right? So obviously giving up getting a strike when you have uh, two strikes already is way more valuable than getting mm-hmm. a strike when it's three and zero. Oh. So the the count actually matters. The leverage matters, and so it's not to figure out the actual impact requires that. So you can only guess at what the impact is. But we'll just I'll just point out that losing eighty six balls and strikes like the Nationals have done on average is going to mean quickly substantial, even after 35 games. Um, the second thing you bring up is. Oh, Adi, I miss what you, Adi, I miss what you said there. 35 games, a differential of minus 86. Minus how should 86. we roughly, how should we roughly that, think that about is, the that impact? Is, of that, that? That, that thing could probably be worth at least a win, if not a, maybe a win and a half to against okay. the nationals. That's a lot. Okay. Maybe that's a little high, but you know, each strike can, can mean depending on the situation, could mean a, a fra- tiny fraction, but a tenth of a run, maybe. And so, so what? But what you're saying is, it's that's two and a half. That's two and a half strikes per game. Is what you're saying? You're trying to translate that into the potential so for right, exactly on both sides, right? So you remember your. So there's about 300. So now, now, now we get. I want to address two issues. One is what causes it. I'm going to hold off on that one. Um, Shane keeps bringing up pitcher framing. It'd also be in, umpire stupidity or or or, or, or incompetence. Or pitcher, well, but 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 but, uh, but biased incompetence. I mean, bias, general bias, incompetence, right. general incompetence wouldn't get you this, which no, is what so I think. The, they have. the real issue is, well, no, it's you can well, it get might, both sides of the ball, you, right? You, you might give you this. It's just you're going to have sure. some range. Some teams are going to. Yeah, I guess more. again, under if you had uniform incompetence and high variation in the actual number of balls and strikes called against a like 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 but Shane, what's high what's high variation especially 35 games in what well, any game right, so, so well, let me, okay let me, for let me, give you, so let me answer that i've done the work here so okay. i'll give you the answer we're going to get the answer now and i'll go break it down so there's about 35 games there's about 300 pitches per game now that means you're looking at quite a lot uh, of or nearly 10,000 uh pitches over this part of the season but how many of them team. are errors so I'll, I'll turn that to you guys to make a guess. What fraction of, of non-swung at pitches or not put in, into play pitches are umpire errors? I know the answer. So what do you think? So Shane may know this better than me. My my impression is that when they started with whatever the tracking mechanism is that they use in baseball and they started giving umpires feedback, it's this beautiful chart where umpire mm-hmm. accuracy just hockey sticks up based on this feedback. And it's up into the 90s, and I think it's at least mid-90s, if not higher. So I'm going to say 96% accurate, something like that. Wow. Uh, okay, well, the the best pitcher is 96. The best, best sorry, umpire, umpire, you mean. Umpire. The best umpire in the league is 96. Okay. Um, the average is around 92 and a half. And there's 300 pitches okay. a game. Okay. Right. And so it used to be around 85. So it, it absolutely hockey sticked up into the into the 90s and it's been creeping okay. up now, um so if you just take about eight percent of those ten thousand you're looking at um that's per per team um so what you're looking at well is, wait uh, already already 
Shane is wagging his finger. <laughs> well, no, I mean, because I, I, I was I, I, only because I'm excited to hear about this variation and the number of pitches thrown by different oh. teams. And if you're, yeah, but it sounds be. like you're actually assuming the same for each. I'm just going to do the average. We're going to, you can, yeah. So, I mean, that's not good. So, no, that, that's one of the things part, that drives right? variation. So, yeah, but it's going to, but we're going to give you the ballpark. So, we'll do first order. So, if, it's, yeah, if you assume the umpires are blowing approximately 8% of their calls, there's been 10,000. And then, and what you do now is to figure out the standard deviation. Well, it's plus or minus one. So, it's the standard deviation is trivial in this case. It's just, just the square root of the number of attempts. So you're basically looking at it around a standard deviation of around 35, um, which means that if you want to turn these numbers into z-scores, yeah. the best, which is the angels, are about 1.6 z-scores, right around the top, you know, five percentile. The worst, 86, is closer to two and a half. Um, so the bottom, the Nationals have really been pummeled. Now that could be because they've just had way more pitches than others. Um, but I don't have. But that, it's still that just. Big, doing, it's, I, would, I would get that. It can't be that big. Um, I don't know. I mean, there's. I mean, especially early in this season. Look at what right. the Oakland Athletics are doing, pitching wise. <laughs> yeah. They're they're letting up like literally. They're averaging over seven runs a game against. And you're telling me that they they're not throwing more pitches than okay we we yeah, yeah. we we, we yeah. got that I I want to note a small detail in Adi I I recognize the team logos better than Adi which is perhaps the first time I've ever been more accurate about something baseball Adi the leading team is the Braves not the Angels Angels oh, sorry the Braves you're right 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 um Adi I would you read anything right. Shane and Adi is there anything about so let me just what you just did was. I think it's vital and it's an easy, easy, very common human mistake, even among experts. You can take any list that's been flipped coins. Like all of us flip 20 coins. Somebody's going to flip more coins, more heads yeah. than the other one. And so you rank yeah. us and all of a sudden it starts looking like somebody's a good coin flipper and somebody's a lousy coin flipper. It's just chance variation. Chance produces spreads that people don't expect. It's not that everyone's going to get the exact same. And so you just said, how much spread should we expect? And you found that, well, plus or minus standard, two standard deviations is going to cover whatever, 95% of the population. In fact, plus or minus two standard deviation covers 29 of our 30 teams. And so it's, it. it's well within what we'd expect. Now, I do want to draw attention to the one outsider because it is a big difference between the most extreme and the next most extreme on the negative side. The Nationals are minus 86, and the next team up, is that the Astros? or minus 56, that's a huge gap. Uh, now, would we begin to be suspicious? Or is this a quality of extreme? You're going to tell me it's a quality of extrema or something, that the, the extreme outcomes, there are bigger gaps at the tails. Me, I don't know, 30, a 30, that's a standard deviation gap between the worst yeah. and the next worst. So might we begin being suspicious of what's happening with the, with the nationals? Okay, so the, that, that's a good question. So now, obviously, I love the way you, you, you phrased it. There's going to be someone good at coin flipping and another bad at coin flipping. The way I like to represent it is every list has a top and a bottom. Mm -hmm. And that, that, that their very existence doesn't mean anything until you mm -hmm. turn it into, into a, a perspective, perspectives that give you a, a judgment. So only the nationals are kind of outside the, what you'd expect to see in a list of 30 numbers. Um, and now you're asking, do we need a cause? Well, Shane would say, well, maybe they just have way more opportunity and that they're, they're, they're the only one not normalized. Yeah, like a first check would be whether they're still as outlying when you kind of measure it as a rate. Right. Shane, so Shane one thing about the rate thing, this is both sides pitching and batting. And so it's only going to cover half. The bad pitching is going to get you half of the way there. It's only going to cover half of the 
volume, let's put it that way. Right, because it's, it's both sides. We're, we're adding them up. And so uh, presumably if you're, but I, I would actually it's argue- Good and bad things better. happen to you when you're batting as well, not just when you're pitching. Yeah, you, the you stat, get, the counting stats. When you're batting, you get- Right, you get, right, 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 right. So, right. The, uh, so I would actually argue that the question would be, do we need, at what point do we look for a cause? Um, at what point do we, we, we abandon chance variation and turn to a cause? Um, so at this point, I might, I might start to look at the, the nationals going forward and, and wonder whether they have a, a catcher who's not particularly framing or their pitchers or their batters are, are not particularly, um, I mean, I mean, there's a classic line about um, an umpire was, uh, was, uh, was questioned by the, uh, by the pitcher over the call that they gave or the catcher at a, at a, at a, um, a pitch thrown to Rogers Hornsby. And the um, and the umpire said, "Mr. Hornsby will let you know when the, you throw a pitch in the strike zone." Um, <laughs> and that's a wonderful anecdote that explains that umpires look to the stars, and and Greg Maddox was famous for that as well. The umpires just knew that was Greg Maddox, which meant that balls on the on the edges just went in his favor because, frankly, the umpires are human beings. They they get balls on the corners and they don't really know what to do. But if it's Greg Maddox, your prior says, "Well, you know, it's a strike." And if it's not Greg Maddox, it, maybe it's not. And so you might look to the Nationals and say, well, maybe they're, they're doing something wrong. But I would, I would wait to see more of the season before I would jump to that conclusion. Because as I said, every list has a bottom. And yes, they are a standard deviation higher than they should be. But no, you know, even that happens too. <laughs> yeah, Isn't it going right. to be so glorious in like five years when this is not even a thing? Like this is so not will, like I, like like yeah. that like oh my like different teams have different number of calls against them wrong you know wrong isn't that gonna be kind of well we'll look back and people be like oh it's kind of cool that like humans used to do this and they weren't as good at it as the machines I, I didn't know but I was told on Saturday that a uh, that most AAA stadiums are using the robot umpire right now and how actually I'm curious I didn't know that myself and that's encouraging because that you know maybe even moves up my timeline a little bit. Uh, but um, are they doing it where it's kind of like, like I actually don't even like, although robots obviously can do this and should do this for us right now, whether it's going to be, whether the implementation is going to be like, it's like kind of like, just like, you know, there's a horn or like, like it's kind of like the second the computer makes a call, it's known to everybody or whether they're just going to kind of buzz the ump with the correct call and no, then the ump communicates the it. Does it and I umpire. hope when it's implemented, the ump does not have, the ability Discretion. to change, right? Because then so, we're just back so, to the old thing. So this is what I what I learned that probably the most uh, the most immediate change would be the ability to challenge. So the umpire will make the call, but you'll have the uh, you'll be have the ability to challenge using using the the system. So dumb. <laughs> like why? Dumb. When everybody knows the correct answer, why you got to go through this right. whole thing? All right. So here's the question, um, and here's why it makes it not easy. It turns out the strike zone will be the actual implemented strike zone. If you think about it as a 3D image, a make a make a a, a geometric figure that's the plate, yep, and make it into a three three dimensional uh, object with the, that's the plate and then the height uh, as appropriate for the batter. And any and if you define the strike zone as any ball that touches that three dimensional figure, two things happen that the players don't like. One, balls will touch the front of the strike zone and barely and they'll seem incredibly low to all players all pitchers catchers in other words the baseball is not accustomed to calling that a strike um 
And so one and and you can also get balls that are the that pop in at the top of the strike zone that curve down yeah. and everyone thinks they're high. No, that, and that I mean it, it is going to change the dynamics. But the great thing so, about so it. Here's, so, so here's the question. Here's the actual question: Should they just make a, a two-dimensional strike zone right down the middle of the plate, define yeah, it as yeah. a as a essentially an outline, and any ball that goes through it? Yeah. Um, no. I mean, my perfect. I think I would. I would keep it. As a 3D. I, I personally would prefer stay as a three D volume. But I mean, regardless, even if it does change the dynamics, it'll change it in like a consistent way that all the hitters can just get used to. Like, okay, like the the, the worst part about this is right now there's a different three D. There's still a three D volume there. It's just inconsistently applied within and between games. Right. And so do, do, real quickly, do y'all think that, of course, Shane, you're right. But 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 the the in in category, but degree matters here. Like how, how big an adjustment would it be if there is this freaky thing that can happen? But it makes me wonder whether pitchers you don't even hear commentators say he caught the front corner. Do they? I mean, do you don't think about pitchers no, trying to nick? It. They don't nick it three dimensionally. They, they, they talk about it and think about it much more two dimensionally. Don't you think they're looking for edges? Not mm-hmm. front corners, right? Yeah, though I mean there are ones that kind of swing in kind of around like where it's like I mean, I don't think they'd show up I don't know how they're scored. They like on the TV, the TV basically does the two the two D square. Like if it, uh, there, there's definitely balls that have like a curveball that like does they not hit the clear, front square yeah. of the plate, but is yeah. over the plate by the time it reaches the back of the plate. Those would be shown as balls by the kind of imagery that we kind of see now, or the, the overlay I, I that they know. put the networks put on the plate. I'm pretty sure. Well, I, I think, think the they overlay, just do that to do them. Is that the the overlay we see on TV? Is that the front of the plate, the middle of the plate? Yeah, yeah, where yeah. Is it? Where, what is it? The front of the plate. Um, not sure. It's the, the front. front. It's the actual front tip, which makes sense because the um, uh, although. It's hard to know because very a slow pitch with a lot of spin actually drops a measurable amount in that distance. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, for sure. No, it's 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 a very subtle thing. Why? Why Almost do you think a machine would do better? <laughs> <laughs> why do you think that the original creators of baseball and home plates made it gave it depth? Why wouldn't you have just drawn a line and said hit it between, throw it between here and here at this particular point in, in between the mound and, and the batter put it between this right and left stake or whatever well i yeah, was cricket's kind of two-dimensional right you have to hit those posts yeah so it's essentially a two-dimensional thing i mean you're well, robbing so you posts of one of their dimensions but fair enough well yes, okay yeah I'm not, sorry posts out there sorry sorry for all the fans of posts out there but it's also a base you have to touch it you have to touch home plate when you when you score so it needs to be a um, oh, that's what it is, though. That's what it is. Well, no, but that's, but they're, they're they're still. I mean, I mean, I, I still think Kate's questions. I mean, obviously, you have to have a three, a two dimensional object for the plate in terms of like plays at the plate, like for runners and some base runners and stuff like that. But again, they could have still defined the strike zone as the square at the start of the plate. Whether the but why would they? Let me just point out as someone who's played baseball. Well, I haven't played it recently, but. As an umpire trying to call a strike, you do not give a shit about the depth of that plate because you can't yeah. tell. No, I mean, that's... You are looking at it 2D, and that's the way it goes. Yeah, I think yeah, this no, is an improvement. I think this is an improvement. When they go to the robo-ump, when Shane's throwing his party for robo-ump day, they need to be... <laughs> it needs to be a two-dimensional object. I think you just, great, you just sacrifice that third dimension. It's an artifact of having laid down a two-dimensional object on the ground 
and and it doesn't serve any purpose. That's that's my claim now. And I'll accept that because the whole, you know, because it's you know the robo-ums will be in at that point. Like I'll, exactly. I'll accept whatever implementation, whatever you're willing we, to we trade have. that off. Um, yeah, are exactly, you? exactly. I think no I think doubt. that's reasonable. Um, well, what uh, what has been the experience? You said all the parks are using it, Adi. Is there are the reports favorable? Or well, is it, I haven't is, heard of I, I momentum. I don't know the current reports. I just heard from the, the, the previous year, um, the reports were that the, the players on both sides of the ball, defense and offense, were just flummoxed by the actual strike zone. Mm, this is and amazing. They were, they were just so, – so the thing that is on the table is to actually redefine the strike zone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. good. But we've yeah. always talked about that in terms of the height of it, the top and bottom. I've never heard it talked about in terms of the dimensionality. I think that's okay, amazing. So it won't actually be a box anymore. It'll be a yeah. something else. Okay. All right. All right, guys. Well, good fun. That's a whole segment of Balls and Strikes, frankly. Uh, appreciate y'all being here for it, for the whole team, Audie, Shane, and Kate, as well as for Eric Bradley, who's been away today, for Maddie Datz, the boss man, for Dion Simpkins, the associate boss man. Thank you guys for listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. <laughs>